I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we sit down with Stephen Jenkinson, a renowned author, storyteller, and grief worker, and we're talking all about death. Let's talk about it. Um, okay, guys, it is with uh, great pleasure that I welcome a very remarkable guest to the podcast today. Uh, Stephen Jenkinson is a Canadian writer, a teacher, a poet, a grief literacy advocate. Um, he has a background in theology, which I really want to dive into a, a little bit. Uh, very curious about that. And an illustrious career as the former director of palliative care at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Um, and Stephen is in the midst of touring um, uh, an incredible show right now called Night of Grief and Mystery, which we will be talking about at length, I'm sure. Uh, Stephen, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today uh, and allowing us a little bit of time to pick your brain about um, your, your life in the, the death trade. And, um, and we're really excited to be able to, to chat with you. Bless you. Thank you. Uh, let's see if I know anything worth knowing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to kick it off just by throwing it to you, Stephen. Um, can, you, can you give us a little bit of uh, a, a sort of an overview of your origin story? How did you, how did you end up where you are today, um, you know, focusing so much of your, your work, your art, your, you know, your efforts in changing the way that we as a society, especially Western culture, view yeah. and, and relate to death? Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> I've, I've often wondered this myself. I mean, anybody who talks with great authority about their own origins is just raving most of the time, I think. So I can just, I can only guess. I mean, I was barely there at the time. But uh, I'd say, you know, a couple of things. One was um, I was read to in utero, I'm fairly sure, and certainly thereafter. And something about the cadence of storytelling, which is so superior to anything argumentative or, or dogmatic or, you know, something. I mean, I'll go as far as to say this. I think the human mind was built of stories for the sole purpose of story. And, and this is why, you know, if you try to, if we engage in an argument now of some description, it doesn't matter what it's about, but in two days, we'd all be hard pressed to re recreate it in any way that meant anything at all. And, and yet, if I told you a story or you told me one, you know, you wouldn't remember most of it, but the part you remember, as soon as you start telling it, man, the story starts telling itself, like in a mycelial kind of fashion. It leaps here and leaps there and establishes a connective tissue. 
And before you know it, you're there. You can't do that with a with an argument. And um, there's something deeply uh, right about that little observation. So, so I was read to a lot, and I've ex- I experienced life that way. Um, I mean, I can argue with the best of them, but I don't do it though. I mean, I just I just fine. That's all. But but storytelling, storytelling is a is the real thing. Mm-hmm. So th- so that came about and it never left me. And then I was, um, I went to Harvard Divinity School thinking I wanted to be, in, well, I knew I wanted to be in the priesthood, but nobody on the, on the priesthood end of things thought that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Largely because I had never been to church in my life. And that, that detail came out in the first <laughs> contact. And they just kind of looked at me like, what are you, son, what are you doing here? And I couldn't answer the question. And so I got I got waylaid into the more academic pursuit, but at the same time met an old black man who was a in his last year of of, um, of gainful employment at Harvard Divinity School, and he was teaching the hortatory arts. That's what he called it. As a beautiful word, and in other words, he was teaching preachers how to preach. And man, this man could preach, I tell you. But um, and he was a storyteller par excellence, and I ended up. Um, apprenticing to him on and off for a seven-year period. I was his band, effectively. And we never said so to each other, never said it out loud, never wondered what we were doing or who we were to each other. And uh, and he was phosphorescent. He was of such a magnitude of humanity that that he um, he was undoing ongoingly for me. And uh, I was I was hanging on by the skin of my teeth for years, not, not trying to in, in any way compete or keep up with him, but simply see if I could occupy the same, you know, the same room at the same time. Um, this is how forceful he was. And he may not sound agreeable to you. And in some fashion, he wasn't. But he was um, an incandescent human. And he was utterly unapologetic in the best sense of that understanding. Mm. And he he stole from me uh, what was, it turned out, was a kind of prized possession I had at the time. So I'm about, what, 20 or something? 21? And at 20 or 21, you got a few prized possessions. Many of them have to do with whatever enables you to slouch at the threshold of adulthood and just cross your arms and sulk and say, don't fucking ask me. You know, I didn't ask to be born. And, you know, all of that malarkey. And he, in like in one fell swoop, he just took that shit away and disqualified it for all time and replaced it with nothing. And when we were done seven years into the operation, and you know, you had to realize at some point, I, oh man, that's finished. Because there was no announcement. It just worked out that way, age and, and different countries and visas and all that sort of thing. And, um, and then it was 10 years in the desert for me. Meaning, you know, I had seen the real thing. I can't overstate to you the consequence of seeing the real thing and then trying to find a way to live as if you had done so. Somehow try to translate what that meant, what was asked of you now, who who could you possibly be, uh, and and what would you never be able to tolerate again from yourself? And, uh, and during that 10 years in the desert, I got married, had kids, tried to make it, you know, steer, steer the straight and narrow and so on. 
But man, I was haunted by what I saw. I was haunted by what was taken from me. I was haunted because I had a glimpse of what was possible at the level of kind of, let's call it culture work in some fashion. And uh, that's a little overview. That gives you that gives you a feel for what my out of the blocks starting gun sounded like. Yeah. yeah. What is it? What's the now? As a, as somebody who grew up with, um, at least in the first decade of my life, with some fairly deep uh, Catholic roots, and being exposed to church and being quite turned off by it. Um, but then at some point, probably in, probably in through film and television, seeing, um, like, like Southern, like Southern U S preachers and being like very stirred by it, like very, very like, wow, that is like that, that is, they're doing something different. They're doing something else. Like, what is it? What is, what is the, that kind of like difference there in terms of like preaching versus like what you, what you kind of see in like when you're getting like a sermon from like a Catholic um, style sort of experience. Well, um, I mean, at the, at the risk of gross generalization now to say anything about it at all. And in fairness, there's all manner of exceptions to what we're saying back and forth here about so-called organized religion because disorganized religion, not doing any better. We should say. I mean, if disorganized religion was in charge, I'm, I, I'm, I wouldn't be confident myself. So, so what's going on? Well, I mean, when you have the the thrust and the burden of tradition, of a long-standing tradition, of you know hundreds or sometimes thousands of years, depending on what your gig is, I think you experience that as a something that you're beholden to, which is proper. And something that you have to maintain and something that, um, you know, the Catholic Church was wildly challenged to to modernize in the 1960s. And uh, it wasn't the only social institution that had that dilemma. But the Vatican II Council, you probably remember that from your youth, um, you know, changed everything, brought English into the into the foreground and 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 made a lot of things a lot more accessible than they were. And. You know, that's a take and give scenario. So as far as the the notion of, you know, down south, it's somehow more alive. I'm down south talking to you right now. I'm in Austin, Texas. I flew in about 45 minutes ago. <laughs> and um, I mean, you know, I, I it's an honor to be here. But between you and me, I wouldn't trade. Uh-uh. I wouldn't trade at all. Because you got to, you got to, you if you trade, you get in the package. Mm. And the package of the fire and brimstone thing is that an insane degree of intolerance and a kind of wacky reverse Puritanism that's mm. in the mix as well, you see. So so we just we want to be alert that the things we find attractive that we can find elsewhere, we pay attention to the things that don't immediately announce themselves too. And if you do that, you can see around the edges of things to some degree, some extent, and and it makes you a little more responsible for your attractions, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I hear you at the level of style. Come mm-hmm. on now, yeah, Jerry Lee Lewis and mm-hmm. Jerry Falwell and all those characters. I mean, everybody's sweating up a storm, and 
powder blue suits and the whole thing. I mean, you don't see that everywhere. And um, and style sometimes make up for a kind of rickety content. <laughs> yeah, major style points. <laughs> I uh, I'm I'm really curious to know how you know. So prior to getting your master's in social work, you you went to Harvard Divinity School, and I, I in in your education in theology, I I'm just I'm just curious about like what what was your take? What were your thoughts on on the notion of death prior to the work that you did as a social worker? In in particular, during your time at the 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 uh, divinity school because obviously there's a lot of um a lot of discussion around death and afterlife when it comes to religion and of course if you're looking at other cultures in the world and and other religions there's many different ways to view death um so i'm just kind of curious like as a young man at the divinity school like what were your thoughts around death then prior to your work Mm -hmm. as a social worker I don't think I've ever been asked this. I'm glad I have been. Thank you for that. Um, I'd say, first of all, it didn't come up as a discrete subject basically at all. And secondly, there's a reason for that. If you're talking about the various Christian denominations and non-denominations, what you have is a situation in which the deep running conviction, which is never seriously reconsidered, is that the man in question, the man God in question, defeated death for all time as soon as you have that running that theme running through your take on on life life death is a kind of what is it it's a kind of a strange intermediary moment you know that that is fully defeatable mm. you know and i mean think do you know this song by uh jason isbel called uh if we were vampires no no you may know it. I'm going to, I highly recommend it to you now. It's just, it sounds like a folky little thing until you start listening to what he's saying. And he's, if, if, uh, if we were vampires and death was a joke, we'd sit out on the sidewalk and smoke. Um, oh God, I'm blanking. I wouldn't feel the need to hold your hand. Uh, oh, we'd laugh at all the lovers and their plans. I wouldn't feel the need to hold your hand. Mm. Maybe, maybe time running out is a gift, he says. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, I mean, you know, the finality of death, the, the utterness, that's a beautiful adjective for it, of death is, um, is small potatoes for revivalist transcendental Christianity, sadly. Mm. And I don't think it should be. I don't think it's wise to, to sneer at death and to, you know, to go along with Paul where he says, death, this very dismissively, where's thy sting, he says, you know. And it's not clear that Jesus was really about that, but uh, the subsequent generations were more marveling at the ability to deke death than the than the guy that they are on about ever seemed to be. Mm-hmm. So there's something to be held in that, that two or three hundred year period when Christianity was finding its feet and getting rolling. One of the things they did was crucify death, you see. Hmm. And that's why the little crucifix became such a potent symbol for them, because that's how they, that, that, that carried in one image the overcomingness of their, of their gig. So, so I think in the Divinity School, 
even though it wasn't a particularly doctrinal place. But that was just that was in the architecture. It was it's just in the wood, in the bricks, and the mortar, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so never people never said, um, "Are we sure that he didn't really die, or he kind of really died, but then he really didn't?" Or is there a language for this that does justice to it? And so it never came up. So the irony is that look what I ended up doing some, I don't know, 15 years or something later after I graduated. For you know what, I'm in something I didn't even know existed, which I came to call the death trade. I, rem- I remember a very, um, <clears throat> I took a course in, uh, I took a course in high school called Homeric Epics, where like, which was which is this amazing experience where I was just with five, I was with four other students and a teacher. And in one semester, we read the Iliad and we just dissected it in one, yeah. one semester. And then the second semester, we dissected the Odyssey. And I remember that I was drawn to taking that course because I had been drawn to, I had been drawn to the Iliad and the Odyssey through, through being in love with the film Troy as a kid, as when, in, when it came out when I was like, 14 years old or something like that. Like Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt plays Achilles in Troy. And this, I don't think this was in the, in the script of the Iliad, but there's a moment in the movie where this young boy is talking to Achilles and he says something about being in awe of him and wishing that he could be a God. Um, and that he, he, he was, he had the powers of gods and, and Achilles says to the boy, um, that something to the effect that, that the gods, the gods envy us, the gods envy humans, because our death is what makes the meaning in our life. The fact that there is no time, the fact that our time is running out, it gives, it gives, it, it, it lends itself to the experience of, of love and music and, and everything that we get to experience as, as living beings on earth. Like that, that piece of the story stuck out to me and really led me into wanting to discuss that and learn more about that in my when I was in high school. Steven, see this this is where I need help because I totally understand what Taylor's saying. And for me personally, like I've said to the guys before, like when we started this podcast like eight years ago, I used to say, I don't want to die. I want to live forever. And through the conversations that we've had, I've become more accepting of I guess more understanding of of that very point. Like the that like in order for me to to really be sort of like inspired to live this meaningful life, like having that end date, um, you know, off in the distance is is a tool to to do that. But also, like I'm like I would live to be a million, <laughs> and then just knowing that that was way off there would still be inspiring. But also, I would have so much time to do all these things that I love because I love being here, and and you know, I I consider myself to be like a somewhat spiritual person, but I don't really believe in any sort of afterlife. Um, but I just really love, I love loving, like I love being here. I love spending my, my time here. And I think in a lot of ways, when I really like meditate on my own mortality, it scares the shit out of me. Yeah. Yeah. As it should, I think. I mean, that fear, that fear thing that belongs, you know, I'm not sure terror is a requirement, but a healthy regard for the 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 non-negotiable end of things does what well necessarily it doesn't do anything it can just nail people to the wall drive a hat through their sternum and they're just dangling there and that that's how they live out their lives 
that can easily happen and does all the time. So we got to be really careful to say, to, excuse me, to not say something like, as soon as you glimpse mortality, baby, you got it figured. I mean, that's just nonsense. If that, if that were true, every person with a terminal diagnosis would be walking around with genius level stuff going on. <laughs> I was there. I'm telling you, that's not true. Okay. At the same time, though, we, let me uh, make two observations based on what you said. Here's the first one. <clears throat> so, you know, we in the developed world are living longer and longer every decade, basically. So we're at the point now where the average median age in Canada is something over 82 years of age. I mean, that's leaps and bounds from what it was when I was even your age, or certainly when I was a kid. So uh, this is kind of staggering, but nobody's doing the math on the following. So you're living longer, yes. You've got more years available to you, yes. It's almost not negotiable now. That's part of the deal with your diet and your, you know, all the trinkets of of the, the trade that we have. But where where does this more time appear? Do you get more infancy because you live longer? I'm going to suggest to you the answer is no. You get more adolescence. Well, you can be more adolescent, yes, as a refusal to age. Yes, that's true. But that doesn't come from an increased lifespan necessarily. You get more middle age. You hear where I'm headed. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm telling you that all of your extra years are tacked on the end. Yeah. And nobody ever says this stuff. Okay, so when you picture living a whole long time, you probably are not picturing being old a whole long time. But, no. But that would be the reality, you see. Yeah. yeah that that I, is the reality that you're wishing for yourself without without quite being clear on the matter. I yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I mean, I just um I just went to visit my grandparents who live in a long-term care home yesterday. And yeah. I was sitting with them in the morning and and uh, the last time I saw them, they live a few hours away from here and and it, it the last time I saw them was a couple months ago. And you know, even in the last couple months, they've they've, um, you know, the, the effects of dementia are catching up on them. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I was sitting there thinking, I, I left with my brother and we were driving home and I was having this conversation with him, like, you know, I don't know what I would do if I was in that position where I knew like it was just six more months or 12 more months where I was just going to continue to sit and live this like sort of groundhog day type of existence yeah. every day without, you know, being able to like, get up and do the things that I love but have to sort of like sit there and think about not being able to do those things. It would be a really challenging situation to be in. And you're, and you're right. That's not how I picture right. those extra years of right. my life. You know, loving being alive, which let me just take it at face value because you said it that way. Sure. It is, of course, a beautiful thing and something to be exercised and proud of and something to be taken care of as well. But I would just draw a little kind of, or put an asterisk somewhere and say, you really want to be alert to whether you mean you love the upside of life. And there is a considerable upside, and I'm not saying there isn't. I'm just saying that a normally lived human lifespan includes way more other side than it does upside. That's just true, okay? So the second thing I was going to offer to you as a consideration is this. So I'm in the death train and I'm seeing my own death every friggin' day. 
I mean, but explicitly, I could hear it. I can smell it. I know what it's going to look like. It's an occupational hazard. And somewhere in there, this was floated to me like a sort of a trout from deep water. That's how it came. Completely unannounced with no descriptor. And then it was gone in a flash. And this is what it was. You know, this thought said to me, you don't really love being alive until you see the end of being alive. Prior to that, what you're loving mostly is how things are working out, if indeed things are working out. Mm. But the bigger story by far is your ability to really love life is rooted in its ending, not in how fabulous it is. That's the, that's the mother of the operation. That's the midwife. Seeing the end of what you hold dear, I'm suggesting to you, is the beginning for real of your ability to hold it dear. And man, I wish there were people on the barricades shouting that shit into the streets. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl! Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I I mean, as someone who has viewed the death of others i mean countless times have been present with families as they are grieving someone who just passed um and speaking with people who are coming up to that moment of of you know the end of their life and and speaking with these people and helping them sort of find meaning to the time that they had here and, and, and speaking about their, their fears or their thoughts as they're about to cross that threshold. What have you gathered in terms of how it is like, what, why is it? Do you think, I mean, I know that I know, I know that this is a question that is way too grandiose to ask. So I'm trying to think of a way to say it. Like what would you say are the most prevalent issues in in like modern western culture yeah. that lead to this this <clears throat> feeling that uh, you know all of us have a, a, a huge majority of us have which is this phobia of death or this this deep illiteracy when it comes to death yeah no it's not a grandiose question it's a far reaching and far ranging question though for sure and it needs a, an engaged imagination to to contend with the overwhelmingness of it all But here's one. So I'm going to say this as an Anglo-North American. You know, when we came over on the ships, uh, you know, the the going history is that we benefited, by and large, from the operation. The indigenous people, not so much. Okay. But there's something else in there that just never gets said. and And it so infuriated me that I put a school together called the Orphan Wisdom School 
for the express purpose of wondering about what I'm about to say to you now. So we come across the waters. And one of the untold stories is the very young and the very old are the early casualties of the on, being on the ships, isn't it? So who washes up on shore in that in that rather beleaguered state? And that this is, you got survivors here now. Now survivors are not the best people to found a culture upon. There's a lot of what we would call now PTSD and all the rest going on there, right? Not only that, but they're shorn of their elders by the time they get here. And it shows. It really shows. And the historical record is so bleak in terms of our performance once we appeared on these shores, allegedly in search of a better life and freedom of expression for religion and so on like this. And I mean, the Americans got a harder go of it because they're, they got a national mythology that's relentless on the matter. Canada, not, not so much, but not a fabulous difference in the records between the two countries. So there's number one. Number two, uh, the early going is what? Is you claim that you're trying to live some other kind of life and you set about naming every particular place you can name in terms of the place that you left. So what's this new world shit? I mean, you know, so as I'd like to say in the school, don't call it New England. There's nothing new about that shit. Call it England again. <laughs> That's what it was. England again. Don't call it Nova Scotia. Call it Scotland again. And so on and so on. Third thing. So it seems to me that people who look like me on this continent, if you're, if you're missing the visuals here, I'm as white as it's possible to get, I should just say. Um, you know, we wake up every day in the absence of what we lost by coming here in terms of tradition, in terms of survivable, culturally viable, employable, articulate, mythologically engaged tradition. It just fell away, man. It, it just didn't, it didn't make the trip. It didn't make the cut. It didn't make it into the seat, chest, whatever it was, but it didn't make it. So we wake up every day in the absence of what we lost by coming. And the indigenous people on this continent wake up every day in the presence of what they lost because we came. Now, at first examination, that's a fairly grim scenario. And it would seem that the Indigenous people are by far and away the bigger losers. But I would caution you on the matter, and I would say the lostness is very comparable between those two groups. I think that's an interesting, a really interesting observation as I, as I think about my own, um, my own sort of like ancestry. Um, and I, I have always, I have personally always felt something similar to what you just said. Kind of like, I've never really considered it as a negative until I hear what you're saying right now. But I, I certainly hear what you're saying and go, yes, I feel, I feel quite devoid of, of culture. And I think that sort of, and I think that sort of um, informs a big part of my a big part of my life, which has been traveling and absorbing culture around the world and being, and, and kind of feeds the fascination of culture 
around the world because I feel like I have been sort of like devoid of it. Um, yeah. which is, uh, which is something that I've never really considered before. What, what do we, what do we lose as a population? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the link I didn't make to the dying story. So thanks for the prompt. Um, I think this is what it is. You know, if you can go to a place in the world, and some of you have no doubt been there, where you ask a seven-year-old kid sitting in the dirt, what happens to you when you die? You might as well get comfortable because this kid will have a lot of stuff to tell you. And the question is not whether it's all, quote, true or not. The deeper question is, this kid abides by this stuff. It's around him from the nanosecond he's around. It's inside of him. It's outside of him. It's in the air he breathes and so forth. It's how he eats. It's what his, his parents are like and his grandparents and his godparents and so forth. Ask any of us what happens to you when you die. Anybody who looks like me on this continent, you know what you're going to get more often than not? Nobody really knows. Can't really know for sure. Well, kind of depends on what you believe. Now, okay. I'm telling you, when your time comes and you're walking around with that, how do you think your time's going to go? Well, you're haunted by the nobody really knows thing. That's what no tradition looks like. See, people used to say to me all the time in interviews in those days, they would say, tell me, it must be true, isn't it? That people with a discernible religious or spiritual orientation to life during the course of their life inevitably have better outcomes when it's their turn to die. And I would say, not what I've seen, no. And they can't believe it. How can it not be so? Well, here's how. Most of those religious or spiritual orientations were taken up as a kind of insurance policy against death. That's the role that it fundamentally plays. It's not really death, nothing to worry about, or things of this kind. So if your, if your spiritual story has been taken up during the course of your life with very little regard and very little input from the realities of dying. You can't be too shocked, can you? That when your dying comes around, your spiritual orientation kind of shrugs and goes, don't ask me. Because that's what you're setting yourself up for, you see. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in what in, because correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm sort of, hearing this hearing you say this and kind of hearing that you know if if we have if we have and, and maybe and maybe this is and maybe this is more central to christianity um where where we are basically avoiding the idea of death because we've framed it as something that we can overcome and that and that's our belief um and 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 and, and is that sort of this, is that sort of, I, I feel like that's, my sense has been that that sort of takes some one shape or another across all religions or at least major religions that there's, that, that death is something that we are, that we are going to uh, overcome and like the afterlife and the, the, the story of the afterlife and what that's, how, what that serves, um, how that serves us. And then also in the absence of like tradition or religion, that we are sort of shrugging our shoulders and 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 kind of equally as as confused or 
kind of left out, hung out to dry. Um, so on both sides of the coin, we sort of have this dilemma of not really facing death, it seems, not really understanding what death does or what its purpose is or what it, what it, what it means to understand it and to kind of walk through it and meet it um, for all that it is. So where do we find, where do we find the, um, where do we find that? Where do we find the ability to, to kind of really grapple with it in its like kind of truest sense? Yeah. Well, it's the obvious answer would be everybody's death before your own. That's one place. Second place would be all of the frailties, all the limits, and all of the endings that your life visited upon you turned out to be all um, dress rehearsals for the big one. That's what they are. They're not incidental. That everything, I mean, all the heartbreaks, like the major heartbreaks, all of that stuff is practice. Mm. Practice for the big one. But uh, if you defend yourself against these things, um, you're going to end up walking around involuntarily and not really fessing up to yourself as, as to the following. You know, it's a shame that everybody has to die. <laughs> no, no. The point is that nobody ever says that about themselves. So the truth is that everybody knows that everybody else is going to die. But the personalized understanding of this goes by the wayside routinely in Anglo-North America. Other places, they have different dilemmas with respect to this stuff. But the part of the world that I know about and have lived in, educated by and, and worked in, man, that, that's the, the order of the day is that everybody knows that everybody else is going to die. And the truth is, I can't see any evidence ongoingly that most people know that they're going to die. Mm -hmm. they, could, they could pay lip service to it, but that's not what the word know means, right? In that formulation, I know that I'm going to die. The knowing part should have enormous consequence in your life, shouldn't it? And I mean, if you don't know you're going to die, I mean, fundamentally, to the point where it alters the course of your life routinely by virtue of the presence of that understanding. Here's the corollary. If you don't know you're going to die, do you know how to live? Do you know what living means? Do you know that you're alive? Are you alive minus that death understanding? You can kind of tell what I'm suggesting. I don't think so. It is a, it is a, it is a fascinating, it's a fascinating point. Um, because I feel like, I feel like I have experienced moments of that knowing. And then I, if I were to analyze it psychologically, right. I would imagine that there is a, you there, got over. There, there, yes, exactly. It, 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 it's like, as soon as it comes, it goes almost like a protective psychological mechanism. And you're okay again. Yeah. <laughs> That's a terrible kind of okay to, to settle for. Mm -hmm. Right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? It's the kind of okay that, it, that a, a deeply lived life doesn't need. Mm -hmm. That's too costly, that kind of being okay. 
at the expense of all that understanding. Better, better to be, have your, look, man, you could put it this way. This thing that we're talking about, if you let it in, this shit is genuinely heartbreaking. It can be terrorizing. It can be a lot of other things, but heartbreak is guaranteed if you let this in. And then, then you start looking around you at people you care about. And you say, him too? Her too? And then you get married, maybe. Maybe you have kids. And you look at kids, right? your kids in the eye and realize what you've done to them by dragging them across the threshold into this world. Mm. You faded them to the exact same thing we're talking about now. Mm. Not only all the confusion about it, but the total self-death that the real thing also is. So, sadly, when we try to get you know, on the other side of this contusion and feel, feel okay again, so we can go out for dinner and not be a drag, we end up saying that the, the recipe is like this. Heart, the recipe for a heartbreak, less heart, less brokenness. Mm. Not a great recipe. I've, I've, found, I've found to the point about having children, I've found, that, I've found that my mortality has been far more present. I have a one-year-old and my mortality is far more present. Yes. Since she's born, been born, because I look at her and I realize I will not be here for the whole time that you are. We will not always be together, and that is always that is that is a uh, it it is heartbreaking. But I think that there's kind of like an understanding that that is just the way that it is. Mm-hmm. You know, our chronological timelines are not synced up, and how could they be? Um, and that this is sort of the. But then, but then there's such a deep love, there's such a deep love there that it's, that it's, it, it immediately occurs to me that it's worth it, mm. even though it is so heartbreaking. It's I worth mean, it. yeah. and that's, sorry, let me just jump and then please, uh, please go ahead. Uh, that deep love that you're talking about, that's how we flirt with eternity, with the notion of eternity. That feels so enduring, so unconquerable that you can't actually allow the end the possibility that that shit dies too. While it's on, it's as powerful a thing as there is in this world. But it dies too. I'm sorry to interrupt. Please go ahead. No, it's okay. I, I mean, just in bringing this up, like my, my mind is racing about, about my own like personal experiences with grief so far, which, you know, Comparatively to a lot of people that I know are, 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 you know, I haven't experienced it that much. Um, but I have, you know, I, I have, I've spent my, my whole life, I've, I've lived with cystic fibrosis. And so I've, I've had this notion of, of meditating on my own death um, quite a bit. I mean, extensively throughout my life. And I got to a point in my, I don't know, it was probably like my, early twenties where like, I really embraced the idea of my demise and I really leaned into it. Yeah. But what I, what I, what I didn't quite realize was how, how much I wanted to avoid the idea of anybody else's passing. So for sure, like I, I have this death, I have this phobia of death, 
in the sense that I don't ever want to, exp- I, I want to, I don't want to have to experience other people's death, but I'm cool with them experiencing mine. And <laughs> which <laughs> it's probably isn't the best way to go about you it. Dick. <laughs> but you know what? It my one of the things that sort of shifted the way that I feel about death was, uh, was from an experience that I had where, uh, my dog died. He was my dog of eight years. Um, me and my, my wife at the time, uh, we had to put him down and I held him in my arms as he passed. And I was very distraught from that experience. Um, and my, my now ex-wife, um, at that time was, was speaking to me about it. And she, she told me this quote, uh, from this guy, Colin Murray Parks, who I believe is a, a, a psychologist, uh, or sorry, a psychiatrist. And the quote is, the pain of grief is just as much a part of life as the joy of love. It is perhaps the price we pay for love, the cost of commitment. And that quote fundamentally changed the way that I, I felt about death. Um, that, that sort of that connection between love and grief. Like if, if so, so when I, when, when she told me this, I looked at this, this experience of losing Bigby, holding on to Bigby as he died. And I thought to myself, well, if I could rewind and go back, I wouldn't change a thing. I would still love that creature as hard as I possibly could have, which would just inevitably land me at this place where I'm going to grieve as hard as I possibly can because of the amount that I love this dog. But seeing it from that perspective, almost, almost like it gave me the, the, the ability to comprehend grief from a, a standpoint of, okay, this isn't, yes, this is an uncomfortable feeling. This is an uncomfortable emotion, but it's not something that, that I want to try to try to stray away from. I want to lean into it and I want to be able to lean into it because if I can't, then it means that I, I didn't give myself the opportunity to love that person or that animal as deeply as I possibly could have out of the fear of having to experience what I just experienced here with Bigby. And so all of that to, to, to say, I really, I, I, I kind of want to just hear your thoughts, Stephen, on, on the relationship between grief and love and, mm-hmm. and the importance of, of viewing grief as not an emotion that we need to like push out of our lives, but really an emotion that we, we really need to lean into because if yeah. we don't, um, there are consequences and those consequences are not something that, you know, I think any of us are really, um, capable of dealing with in a, in a, in a healthy way. Well, the first thing I'd say is I don't think that love or grief are feelings or emotions. It's not to say we don't have a lot of quote feelings about those things, Mm. right? And that we don't experience a lot of feelings when those things are on and when they're gone. But those things in and of themselves are not the feelings we have about them anymore than your dead dog is the cumulative consequence of all the feelings you had about him. There was also a dog there that had nothing to do with your feelings. Right, right. And you and and he's not the occasion for you have a, a wonderful feeling life. 
right? That's not the deal. Mm. Okay. So I'd suggest to you then that grief and love are principally skills, not afflictions, not inner weather or outer weather for that matter. They're something that it's, it's very important to get good at. And as soon as you say good, most people picture, oh, getting good at grief means like not having to do it a lot. But it means exactly the opposite. It, when, when you're good at grief, it's like being, being good at tennis, for crying out loud. Or, you know, if, if you're drawn to the sport, you're trying to get good at it, right? Right. Why? Well, it's kind of self-evident, isn't it? It's joyful in its way, and an and increased capacity translates into a greater enjoyment. Yeah, but you're not trying to get good at tennis so you can finally quit, are you? Nobody would ever say such a thing. But yet when you, when you think about getting good at grief, that's exactly the metabolism that comes into the picture. You're trying to get it to the point where you don't have to do it anymore. And what you hear me suggesting here is this. I got my own little epithet apropos of grief and love that goes something like this. Grief is the love you have for that which is gone from view. But love, love is the grief that you have for that which has not yet gone from view. Yeah. Love is a kind of grieving. That's what it is. That's what, you know, attachment includes. And getting good at it doesn't mean semi-detached. That's not the... That's not the way on to, you know, to get deep into life and be proud of having done so. So the idea that you, you, that all of your failures constitute um, some kind of abrogation of your responsibility. This is just crazy talk. Mm -hmm. Your failures are among other things are your opportunity to get, get sorted on these matters we're talking about now. You can't do it if you're a happening guy. You can't do it. You have to be brought to utter arrest more than once in life. Mm. And a divorce will do that for you. And the death of a dog, although it's starting to sound like a country and Western song, but still. (laughs) I still got my truck. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I'm curious, Stephen, um, to come back to something you said earlier, too. I was... When you talked about um, when you when you truly face the idea of your mortality, and you realize that like how how like debilitating that can sort of be, and debilitating and both inspiring you to like really truly fully live your life, and how you said that most people don't really really feel that feeling until they like are forced to face their mortality and it becomes really real at the end of their lives. When you said that, I, I, I thought about like how, then if we really em- embrace the idea of dying, like how could you even possibly live? It would be such an overwhelming experience. But is, is that sort of like what you're talking about in the skill of becoming y- yes. good at grieving? <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a kind of crush. That's what it is. It's your, like the egg eggshell version of life that you had been you you had graduated from your adolescence with can't take the heat, okay? Can't take the heat of a real life. 
you're understanding what love is, can't take the heat of love. Okay, we are, I mean, intuitively, this understanding is very available to us. But generally speaking, nobody's going to saddle up to that thing and, and enjoy doing so. So then you realize you have to be on the receiving end of undoing before you can claim any kind of facility in the matter, right? You have to be undone several times before you have any sense of what being done feels like. And so, um, I, I mean, get a load of this. This is a true story or a true lament. So I'm in the death trade, and I can tell you that most people came to their dying time with a kind of an, an aversion that was so strong and I'm talking about the days before MAID was legalized or euthanasia was legalized, okay? They would ask me, I mean, I got asked virtually every day to help somebody kill themselves for, for years. Why? You're not going to believe the reason that they would give as the principal reason not to be alive anymore, but this is what it was. I don't want to live so long and in such a, you know, undone sort of fashion that I become a liability or a burden to people I care about. Boom. That was it. Over and over again, that was the one. And so people would say to me in interviews and so on, man, what would you say then when people would say that? I always said the same thing. Too late. Too late for what? Too late to try not to be a burden on other people. You mean since you got sick? No, shit, no. Years before that. You've been a burden to so many people for so long, you can't keep track of it anymore. That's what being alive is. It's a burdensome proposition one to the other. That's how we bump into each other. That's how the meaning of our life begins to happen, you see. It's, it's not because you're writing the official version of yourself. It's really comes to this. So now you're dead. But you're really dead, though. And you're not coming back. And they have a wake, if you're lucky. And if you're lucky, there's enough sort of loosener of the tears available in bottle form or some other form that people can get properly going about you. And they start talking shit about you, don't they? And some of it's true, but not all of it. You know, some of it's malarkey too. And, but they're, they're on and on about you now. And what's happening? The answer is the meaning of your life is beginning to cohere, you see. Mm. And it was impossible for that to happen while you were here with us. Why? Because you kept talking and adding to the friggin' historical record. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you, we, we simply can't come to any real conclusion about you as long as you're muddying the waters by still being here. That's right. That's right. Uh, but that's the way, like, Chair, that's the way I've always felt about you being so openly vocal about being okay with dying. Is that like, mm. like, like I felt that too late, like too late because you're now, you've been a burden to me because mm. I fucking love you. And mm. like, you know, just because you're okay with that, like I'd, I, I'm not yeah. like, um, all right, fine. I'll leave you alone. I mean, whatever. I, I'll, and you're I'll, muddying the waters. I'll, I'll let you be. There's, a, there's such a, there's such a, an incredible like nugget of, of like really objective truth in what you just said there, Stephen, like the, and, and something that 
you know, when you hear something and you go, man, if like that little piece of understanding or that little piece of knowledge was like just on its own, it's just, it's like, it's such a this powerful little thing. If that was disseminated widely, then yeah. it could, it could, it could have such a profound um, social like change on a population level. Mm. Like the piece that you said about the burden started well before mm-hmm. you you were ever sick. Cause I feel like that, I feel like people, people can feel towards the end of their life, especially if they require a lot of care, they can, f- they feel quite, they feel like they've become selfish because sure. they require so much or can yeah. require so much. And, mm-hmm. and if, if there was a base understanding that that was part of the deal well before they ever found themselves in the circumstance in which they're in, then that feeling of selfishness that is uncomfortable and, and brings about the feelings of, I just shouldn't be here anymore because of that, um, might be avoided Mm. if that little nugget was something that we, paid more attention to and understood earlier in our lifetimes. Yeah. As if you're not being here, we'll fix all the stuff that you broke by being here. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's another one. Right? I, 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 you know, talking about this, um, talking about these ways of viewing our life and, and, and our death and the life and the death of others that we love. Um, you know, I, I feel like I feel like there's there, there's like three huge educations that we just we that we do not currently have as a part of of our our adolescence, a, a part of our coming of age, coming of age. You know, in, in at least here in in North America, we have we have we do not have uh, a a proper sex education growing up. We don't have a proper education on relationships and how to like, how to foster good and meaningful relationships. And we don't have an education on, on how to view and handle and, and lean into death and grief. Um, And I really appreciate that the work that you do, Stephen is, is, is trying to offer some of that education surrounding death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know that, um, you know, I, w- I want to be mindful of your time. I know that you, you literally just landed in Austin and you're, you're probably tired, but um, speaking of that education, you are currently on tour for, um, for your show that you have created with uh, yourself, Gregory Hoskins and um, a couple of other musicians that, that has, I mean, you guys have put together this piece of art that is incredibly beautiful, incredibly profound, and I think incredibly important. Um, you're touring the world <laughs> with this show. Um, uh, the tour itself will bring you guys to Israel, the, across the US, Scandinavia, UK, Scotland, Australia, New Zealand, and of course, Canada. Um, and I would love to kind of just before we we wrap with you, just hear a little bit about the inception of this project, how it came to be, and for folks that are looking to attend, which please, if you're listening to this right now, 
go, um, there's a link in the show notes here. Go check out where the show is going to be. And if it's in your town, you have to go. You're going to be in Halifax on August 2nd, uh, which will most certainly be there. What can people expect going to the show? What is Night of Grief and Mystery? <laughs> okay. That's like asking me how I turned into me. <laughs> let, let me try. In five words or less, please, and go. <laughs> um, well, it's not something I was thinking about doing. It was something that literally dropped out of the sky and uh, laid claim to me, you know. And um, you, could, you could look at it differently and say, well, I tried not doing it and it didn't work out. <laughs> So I was left with no other choice but then to do it. So what So what is it then? Well, the best thing I've come up with that, that I can say in sort of 30 seconds or less is, you know, we have a tradition of theater in the West. And there's certain accoutrements that come with things theatrical. And we know what they are. And we recognize the theatrical moment when we see it. And two of the, the fundaments of theater in, in our part of the world is the existence or the conceit of an audience, or the thing called an audience. And the other one is a thing called a script. These are the two things that make theater what it is. Other things as well, but those are the two I'm thinking of now. With an audience, what you have is a circumstance in which people are kind of sitting in vague adjudication mode from a great distance away, you know, finding out what, you, what you'll do but not in any serious sense of the term, seeing themselves as participant uh, participants upon whom things rely as people of real and genuine consequence that evening. That's when you're an audience, you don't see yourself that way. But if you're in a ceremony, you do. Apropos of the script then, if you've got a script, if you script it out where this thing ends, where it goes, what it turns into, what it becomes, then one of the consequences is literally you're foregoing the presence and the consequence of the gods and ancestors and all the worthies and the saints and the whole friggin' shamas that we we're talking about off, off the top that seem to animate the potential revivalists way down south in this part of the country where I am now. See, they, they were mobilized by the presence of those, let's call them spirits in a generic way, and, uh, and understood themselves to, to bear a burden and a consequence and an obligation to do so. So I think the Knights of Grief and Mystery is a pre-theatrical ceremony. It's as old as anything we have, and this is why modern people tend not to recognize what it is. It's not that it's so novel. It's that it's so old. It's a ceremony, the great predecessor of theater. So that's what we do. We literally conjure an evening out of the, out of the standing atoms of the room and the willingness of the people to come. And um, it's, of course, it has musical elements to it, but I wouldn't call it a musical. Of course, I'm speaking, as you've been hearing me do here for the last hour, but I wouldn't call it talking uh it's poetic but it's not poetry per se so so what's left hmm. and the answer is well it borrows from all those things to deeply and i mean in an 
in an adamant way make a plea for this mythical better day that seems continually to elude us, with details, I should say. And so it's, I'm enormously proud of it. And uh, it's something, like I'm about to turn 69 years old, and apparently you're not supposed to be doing this kind of shit at 69. It's, <laughs> it is a bit hard on the chassis, I have to tell you. But, but the trade, the trade I make, you know, that uh, eventually I'm going to be sitting looking out the window and not being able to move, uh, like your grandparents, I think you're talking about, in the home. Mm-hmm. Some version of that, no doubt, awaits me. But between now and then, I'm bringing it, man. Mm. That's a beautiful metaphor mm-hmm. for everything we've talked about today. Yeah. Stephen, I, 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 um, <laughs> I, wish, I wish we could speak to you for... Far many more lives. hours than, yeah. than you would ever be willing to sit Wish and chat with us. Put you in my pocket, and <laughs> um, take you around, and consult you on but, a bunch of different matters throughout just regular everyday life. But I, I gotta say, I when I saw when I saw you when I saw you on stage performing a couple of years ago at the Death Symposium in Toronto, um, put on by the the Institute of Traditional Medicine. Um, I it it was a it was a it really was like a life altering experience. And so uh, to hear that you guys are on tour once again, and to hear that you're coming to our hometown is I'm just, I'm absolutely elated for anybody that is listening to this right now. I, I implore you to check out and see where this show is coming. And if it's coming anywhere remotely close to where you live, um, it is, you know, on, if or even look, not so close. I, well, it, I, I was gonna, I was going to say if this was a if if this performance was like had a Michelin star rating, it would be the Michelin star rating that 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 says it is worth a, it is worth traveling to a destination to experience. And so uh, I'm 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 so stoked that you're going to be coming here. Cannot wait for the show, um, and I I can't wait to to, uh, to to just hear more of of you speak and to hear the music uh, that comes along with that performance because it, it's, it really is something else. I want to say thank you so much for taking your time today to chat with us. This has been um, just a really wonderful conversation and, uh, and we really appreciate the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're very kind. You're exceptionally, exceedingly, intemperately kind in those accolades. And I'll, I'll take it though and just acknowledge what I think would be obvious by now that we're obviously, you know, your scholars and your gentlemen, and there's damn few of us left. So, amen. Um, thank you again. And folks, just, just, a, just a heads up. I mean, we, we barely touched on a, a fraction of the stuff that I was hoping we could talk about. But, um, Stephen, how can people find you? Uh, you, you have a number of books that, I mean, Die Wise is one, you know, is, is one that just, comes to top of mind that like things that I, I, I really think more of the world needs to check out. How can people find you, the work that you do, if they're interested in, in learning about, um, you know, your writings or, or uh, even the, the, the school of uh, um, uh, orphan, orphan wisdom, wisdom. orphan yeah. wisdom. Um, how Thank can people find you and stay up to date with the work that you're doing? Thank you. Yeah. Well, there's, as you mentioned, there's books, there's way too many interviews at this juncture, I think. There's uh, there's a lot of newsletters and uh, and films, documentaries, and so on. 
and recordings. I've got, we got three records and we've got another one more or less in the can now, Gregory and I. So all of this is available uh, or you can be prodded by it at orphanwisdom.com. And, um, um, it, you know, I'm not being coy. In the time I got left, uh, I don't see any reason to be careful. I mean, I think I'm considerate, but I'm no longer um, possessed with a sense of hesitancy about these matters. I've got a sense of purpose that, uh, that has got the better of me. So given that, there's no reason that this should be the last time that we talk like this. So you invite me, I'm your man. Love it. Thank you for that. Thank you so much well for your done. time. Thank you. Thank you too. Take care of yourselves now. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.